This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A fresh take on anti-Semitism amid an alarming global increase in the oldest hatred in the world. And how a new technique called investigative genetic genealogy helped Toronto police solve two murders that took place back in 1983. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Canadians are waiting longer than ever for specialized treatments, according to the latest annual study on medical wait times from the Fraser Institute. The think tank reports a median wait time of 27.4 weeks for Canadians to get treatment from a specialist, up from 25.6 weeks in 2021, and much longer than 9.3 weeks in 1993 when the Institute recorded its first survey. The report measured the amount of time from the referral from a family doctor to the consultation and the time that patients ultimately received treatment or surgery. Prince Edward Island has the longest wait times in the country, and Ontario recorded the shortest wait time, which was still more than five months long. Nearly one million Americans have no immediate family members to provide assistance if needed, and that number is expected to grow. An estimated 6.6% of Americans 55 and older have no living spouse or biological children. University of Western Ontario sociologist Rachel Margolis co-authored a new study that also finds the rise of so-called gray divorce after 50 also means fewer married seniors, which means more people will have more years without surviving family. Research shows these so-called kinless Americans die earlier. Indonesia's parliament has unanimously passed a controversial revision of its penal code that criminalizes extramarital sex. Sex outside marriage will be punishable by a year in jail. The code, which will take effect in possibly three years' time, will apply to citizens and foreign visitors alike. It will also preserve the death penalty, prohibit the promotion of contraception, and restore a ban on insulting a sitting president. Harbor survivor Frank Amon has broken his own record a few times now as the world's oldest conductor. In 2019, he conducted a performance of the Stars and Stripes Forever at a Memorial Day concert. Then a year later, at 103, he broke that record. And just a few weeks ago, at 104, Frank did it again when he led the United States Air Force Band in a rendition of In the Mood in Washington, D.C. 
This week, the U.S. second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, convened a roundtable on anti-Semitism at the White House to address what he is calling an epidemic of hate. The alarming rise of anti-Semitism here in Canada and around the world has been fueled by conspiracy theories on the right and the cover of anti-Zionism on the left. I talked with Dara Horn, author of People Love Dead Jews, reports from a haunted present. So you wrote a very provocatively titled book, People Love Dead Jews, uh, but living Jews, not so much. That's What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is the argument of the book is twofold. It's that people tell stories about dead Jews that make them feel better about themselves And the other side of it is that living Jews have to erase themselves in order to gain public respect. Um, This uh, idea is encapsulated in um, a story that I tell toward the beginning of the book of something that happened at the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam in 2018. Um, This is, of course, the museum where uh, the teenage uh, Jewish diarist Anne Frank was uh, hiding uh, with her family in this office building in these hidden rooms. This building is now this blockbuster international museum. Uh, In 2018, there was a young Jewish man working at this museum, and the museum would not allow him to wear his yarmulke to work, right? This uh, small uh, skull cap that religious Jewish men often wear. They wouldn't let him wear his yarmulke to work. They made him hide it under a baseball hat. He appealed this decision to the board of the museum. The board of the museum then deliberated for four months and then finally relented and let this man wear his yarmulke to work. And um, as I put it in the book, Four months is a really long time for the Anne Frank Museum to ponder whether or not it was a good idea to force a Jew into hiding. And, you know, that story really encapsulates the idea of the book, which is that there's this, um, you know, these stories about, you know, uh, whether it's the Holocaust memorialization or other stories about Jewish communities of the past that are idealized and romanticized, whereas like living Jews are required to erase themselves from those conversations. You also say in that story that you think the reason that Anne Frank's story became such a phenomenon was the one line that people seized on that she said was that despite everything, I still believe that people are basically good. The reason for that is that we, you know, people find this line inspiring, by which we mean it flattering. Um, it makes us feel forgiven for, I don't know, lapses of our civilization. The reality is so much simpler. Anne Frank wrote this line about people being truly good at heart three weeks before she met people who weren't. Because three weeks after she writes that line in her diary, she's arrested, she's deported to Auschwitz, and guess what? She met people there who weren't truly good at heart. There's another... uh myth that you bust in the book that I found really interesting, and that is about the changes of names. So in the States, there's Ellis Island. Here, there's Pier 21. So there's uh, this myth that people with very Anglo names, that somehow they landed at Ellis Island or they landed wherever they landed, and the immigration officer couldn't deal with their names, so wrote down something different. And the classic, in the classic joke, it's it's uh, somebody uh, lands and sa- he, they were given a name and and they asked what it was and they said "Schoenfargassen," which means I already forgot. 
and it was written down as Ferguson. And you say this all total baloney. Immigration offers ne- uh, officers in Ellis Island, they never wrote down immigrants' names. They had shipping man- uh, manifests from the shipping company. The emotional work it's doing is erasing the history of, um, in the case of Ellis Island, of American anti-Semitism. Because what we do have, uh, instead of the bumbling clerk, what actually happened, we have tens of thousands of court records in New York City court of um, not just Jewish immigrants, but their children, a generation later, going to court and changing their names. And the reason they did this was because of American anti-Semitism. You know, today we talk about anti-Semitic incidents, but in 1940, it wasn't about incidents, right? It was about, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't rent an apartment. You couldn't stay in a hotel. I mean, these are life-limiting things. These people were staring down this horrifying reality and trying to you know, do something to, to help themselves. And they created this mythology to protect their children from psychological damage. We've seen a big resurgence in the United States. And well, of course, around the world, but in the United States. And how are people internalizing that or perceiving it? Jewish readers have sort of have been inundating me um, with messages, which all are exactly the same. They all say, um, I felt uncomfortable my whole life. I never understood why. Your book articulated this for me. Thank you. And then they say, I never told anyone this before, but. And then they tell me it's like a horrible story from their own life. There are like humiliations, you know, remarks people make to them at work you know, rejections um, that they've gotten from friends. Things like, you know, there's, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm actually astonished by how many people are getting pennies thrown at them in 21st century America. I thought that died in 1952. Apparently not. There's all these sort of very common anti-Semitic ideas. And one of them is that, is that anti-Semitism isn't real, <laughs> right? I mean, that, you know, dismissing um, Jewish people's experiences with it and saying that, oh, this isn't really happening. It's all in your head. Um, you know, there's this plausible deniability. This guy who shot up the synagogue, he was just mentally ill. It's like, well, you know, but there's probably a reason that the voices in people's heads are all saying the same thing. Um, you know, there's sort of like there are any kind of possible excuse people can give to it. But I think that the more you hear about this, like this, these sort of secret stories that people are sharing with me, should be shared more publicly because I think that there's not an awareness among the larger non-Jewish society of what people are have lived with and carry with them. Dara Horn, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dara Horn, author of People Love Dead Jews. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how new techniques in genetic genealogy solved a pair of 40-year-old murder cases. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. The man charged in two grisly murders perpetrated nearly 40 years ago made his first court appearance on Friday. Police believe they were able to solve the case all these years later because of advances in investigative genetic genealogy. Detective Sergeant Stephen Smith explains how this technique led to the arrest of Joseph George Sutherland. This process is just fascinating. And 
starting at the beginning, almost most fascinating was the suspect that you arrested wasn't even on your radar. He was not a person of interest. That's true. Um, Without this process, we wouldn't have been able to come to this conclusion in in these cases. Tell us how it started. Uh, It started when um, one of the other officers and I took a course on... um, it was on historical homicides, and we actually had the Golden State Killers, the investigators from the Golden State Killer uh, investigation, come up and speak to us. And they explained the process that they utilized to be able to, to find their suspect. Um, at first, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but it did give us hope that we may be able to utilize this in some of our cases. We'd selected uh, two cases, one of which was the Tyson-Gilmore-linked case, and the other one was the... Uh, uh, Christine Jessup case, and we decided that those were our two, uh, the two cases that we wanted to try this with. Tell me a bit about those cases, about the women who were murdered. Susan Tice was a, a 45-year-old mother of four. She was the first woman that was murdered, and she was living alone. She had just recently separated for, from her husband and was living alone down in uh, the southern end of the, the city. And at the time, she was alone in her home. And unfortunately, this offender was able to uh, to gain entry and uh, and sexually assault and murder her. Erin Gilmore was a, a 22-year-old young lady. She had just finished work that night and was going to go out with her boyfriend in the evening. And there was only about a between a 20 and 30-minute window for her to uh, for this offender to be able to get into her home while she was there alone. And uh, again, he was he sexually assaulted and. Uh, and murdered her. Tell me uh, the year these murders occurred and where did you get stymied in the search for a killer or killers? The year was 1983. So at that time, there was no real DNA testing. So it was basically um, traditional police work. And the officers that were in charge of these cases did amazing jobs. Um, When we've gone through to look back at the cases, they uh, I can't tell you how much work was put into this and how many people were looked at as possible offenders. Um, but at that time, there was no, no fingerprints came back. And once DNA testing came in, uh, we weren't able to link anybody through, uh, through DNA to, uh, to be the offender. Around 2000, you figured out that the two cases were linked. Why were, were you not able to make any DNA links at that point? So the process we were using then is um, autosomal DNA. So it's basically one-to-one testing. So we have to find the one person in the world that is the donor of that DNA, be able to get their DNA and match it up to say, yes, that is our person. So it's akin to searching for a needle in a haystack. So it could be anybody in the world, and we have to be able to find that one person. And if that person wasn't on our radar back in the initial investigation and they weren't living still, in the city and we had there was no nexus to to tie them to this case there was no way we were able to find that one person to be able to connect them to these crimes what changed so describe the process i know you go through a a, a dna from relatives but describe how the more recent process allowed you to find the killer so genetic genealogy allows us to um, instead of looking for that one person, it allows us to utilize uh, familiar relations to be able to narrow down to an offender family. From there, we're able to switch back 
And then we use the one-to-one comparison once we've focused in on someone that we believe is our person of interest. If the relatives were not on your radar, how do you get to them? We only utilize two genealogy databases. There's only two that are allowed for police involvement. That's GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. And people there, it's in the terms of service for those two companies that state that under certain circumstances, such as sexual assault or homicide, that they will allow police to upload their kits and use familial matching. And GEDmatch actually actually goes one step further where you actually have to opt in to agree to police matching. So basically, any of the DNA that we're using, people are well aware that we're using their DNA, and they've actually put it on there to further their their studies, but also to be able to assist police in their investigations. And they've agreed to that. I guess you were lucky that this family or someone in the family agreed to that. Yeah, we were. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that we need is that uh, anybody that does any of the pay-per-use kits, such as 23andMe or Ancestry, any of those, um, if they were able to upload to GEDmatch and or Family Tree DNA, it would really be an assistance to help us solve more of these cases. Tell me when you got the first hit and how did that eventually lead to the suspect? You started with the suspect's great-grandparents. Yeah, we, we had to go back even further than that, but we were able to determine the uh, the suspect's great-grandparents. And from there, we're able to narrow it down to find out where the families had uh, had intertwined amongst themselves that lead us closer to where the suspect's DNA is. How long did that take? And again, how do you do that? In this case, it was very difficult. There was a lot of twists and turns in this case. It took us about three years. How you do that is you have very good trained genealogists on staff, which we do, and we utilize them to help build the the family trees. And as we narrow it down, then we start utilizing some more traditional police investigative means to narrow it down further and, and really focus in on the person of interest. Lucky for us that the Solicitor General of Ontario has provided us with a, uh, a grant to continue these investigations through genetic genealogy. So we're in the process of looking at um, up to 30 cases across Ontario that we're going to put forward for, uh, for this type of testing and to utilize this investigative means. Detective Smith, thank you so much for that. Thank you for having me. That was Detective Sergeant Stephen Smith, lead investigator on the 1983 murders of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.